Welcome to the Fright Files. It's Calvin here with my friend Ben. Uh, ben, it's our first uh, podcast just uh, hosting together. Uh, how are you feeling about our new venture? Uh, I'm feeling really excited about this new adventure. Um, it kind of spawned out of just a random interest in J-horror of all things, but I feel like it's expanded into something much bigger and I'm excited for the future of what this podcast will be. We could say it was like a very random interest, but also after uh, 20 Juon movies, I don't know where like the random line intersects, but this is just something we're doing. This is just a behavior we've let go too far. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, so we've watched a lot of good and bad um, J-horror, Japanese horror movies, and uh, uh, lending into that, there's a lot of source material for these that aren't exactly um, analyzed next to uh, some of the um, adapted works for television and film. Um, so we're going to look more into a combination of horror movies next to their source materials. I think that'll be interesting study and conversation for us. Absolutely. And I guess we should say that this will definitely expand beyond Japanese horror texts and movies. So lots to look forward to. Yeah, we have a very long American series in mind. We could maybe guess that, but uh, um, I think guessing will be part of it. Uh, people could follow along. We'll be recommending a lot of books and a lot of movies. So uh, there's there's a lot of text here that we're dealing with. Uh, maybe the most text of uh, the Twin Geek show that we have uh, available. Um, uh, uh, literary Society, uh, The Fright Files. I, I love our name. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, maybe we'll go into like a very deep American horror series. We could look at some Stephen King, maybe eras or series. Or, uh, But first we're uh, dealing with... Uh, often called the um, Japanese godfather of uh, the J-Horror movement, uh, the Japanese Stephen King, as he's often referred to, uh, Koji Suzuki, uh, the author of uh, the Ring series, which spans six books. Can you believe it? I, I can't believe it, and I really can't believe how many movies it's expanded into. <laughs> More than uh, that. <laughs> we, have, we have like quite the job on our hands with this, with this start, so... The mimetic thing about Ring is like the seven days thing. Like that's kind of a, a scary fixture to attach a, a time limit because when you're a kid going to the movie for that next week, you're going to be thinking about it. And uh, we're going to kind of span this over seven different episodes where we uh, dissect uh, uh, some match text, some mismatched, <laughs> mismatched text, and uh, just try to like find the sources for where these things are coming from, but also where they diverge. I think where they diverge is very interesting too. Absolutely. And I, I think that the Ring series was such a good place to start because this wasn't just a cultural phenomenon within Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in the US. Uh, and we've come to learn that there's even a Ring adaptation or film adaptation in Korea. So this is like a worldwide phenomenon that, you know, we we had seen some of the movies before, never uh, read the book and it just felt like the right time to maybe explore this whole world <laughs> yeah and we like picked up the first trilogy of the books or um i have uh, uh so we have rings is our first one which spawned uh, the first two movies is the 1995 ring and um uh, ringu will be our second one from 1998 uh so yep. those will be the three texts considered today um and i uh, think they're 
they're a little bit different each, um, <laughs> especially Suzuki's writing. I think we'll find a lot of divergence and, and uh, a personal interest and uh, see how that was adapted for screen is pretty interesting in itself. Absolutely. Yeah. He's uh, there's definitely some elements to his writing and to the storytelling that I would say are maybe puzzling also partly problematic um sure. yeah. but that was kind of half the fun of digging in i suppose <laughs> i have a strong relationship with the ring um the gore verbinski one because uh being a washingtonian that cel celebrates the pacific northwestern art i like uh movies set out here especially horror movies give me your your twin peaks your vanishing american version and uh I'll, I'll go for it. I'll try it out. I'll try anything that's kind of like in the nature of the Pacific Northwest, which I think has such strong ties to a Japanese sense of identity and horror anyway. So I think it's a very good correlation. And if you're going to bring something from Japan over, I think Seattle and surrounding area, very good fit for it. Um, and so I was very endeared by it uh, since I saw that in theater and then immediately explored uh, uh, the 1998 98 one and then kind of just dropped it from there for a long time um but uh yeah i have a fantasia fest coming up and that has a uh, sudoku 2 sadako how do you say her name not sudoku uh, sadako 2 yeah or we could right? even say sada for short i suppose sada, they, sure. they refer to her uh as sada a few times throughout the novel and book or novel and movie so yeah um, so she also has <laughs> kind of her offshoot series and she has one where she's um, in some kind of contest with the uh, Juwan creature. <laughs> there are versus movies based on uh, Sada and uh, the Juwan. Um, so uh, these curse movies and everything that kind of sprung from rings as a novelization is kind of the source of a growing Americanization of what Japanese horror could be. Of course, we both know very well there are like um you know five or six different japanese horror movies that like preceded this one of course like movements i should say there are like significant moments in japanese horror that weren't just like okay we're just bringing them to america um they have their own culture around horror and it's not doesn't start or end with rings so um i think it's often perceived as like this is the start of the americanization and the western spread of japanese horror but uh at least since then, I think there's a great awareness for the other phases that came way before this one. Yeah, I, I would say that um, when people bring about the term J-horror, which really should be all-encompassing of like Japan's horror history, <laughs> you would think, um, yeah. but people, when they think of J-horror, they do think that they always start with Ringyu. And they move forward from there. They move forward to Juon or The Grudge um, or even Dark Water, One Missed Call. These are all things that have had like American adaptations or, or were widely uh, screened throughout the U.S. And it's, it's interesting to see why the you know, why, that these were the ones that became so popular within our culture um, and after reading the book and rewatching the movie, I feel like I might have some suspicions as to why. Yeah. But there's definitely even in the 90s um, on my recent podcast with Jack for Adventures Through Asian Cinema, we talk about Cure. There's another film even before Cure called Angel Dust, where these are like very uh, they have very like uh, 
intense, uncomfortable atmospheres, uh, and they are rather minimalistic with what they do, which I think people kind of assign minimalism to J-horror. Um, but when people talk about J-horror, they don't really talk about Cure or Angel Dust. Uh, it still just always starts with Ringy. So, and they should do, I don't know. Too. Yeah, I think you know better than well, better than most, I'd say, because you're very academic about it. The start of like the um, or of the whole journey of the transgressive movements of Japan cinema, like a, a Hideo Nikata, uh, the director here of The Ring, uh, he got to start in like the Pinku films, and he, uh, a lot of that transgressive stuff bled into a lot of um, Japanese horror material, and there are a lot of fascinating <laughs> phases that uh, would never make it in America that aren't aren't going to be screened here ever, probably um that's that's perfectly fine and all worth uh, uncovering and we might even uh uh lead down some of those roads eventually with the show i'd like to get into some of that i know uh auditions one that uh we're we're kind of working toward mentally yeah absolutely i think that uh audition it, it definitely gets filed under like peak j horror but because it's Takashi Miike and because it's an adaptation from Ryo Mirakami, uh, there are a lot more confrontational aspects to that film <laughs> and that book. Yeah. And um, it certainly separates itself from, I guess, the rest of the pack. Um, and that you can even compare it to Miike's later effort of One Missed Call. They are decidedly <laughs> two totally different movies. Um, there's so much to work with here. Um, and, and Japan has been exploring, I guess, horrific subject matter, you know, as long as anyone else has. And sure, I think some of the most frightening things to come from Japan are like the face of another or woman in the dunes. And those aren't even explicitly categorized as horror. Uh, two of the best movies that I've seen that I feel are very Ben adjacent, Ben core movies. Um, I'd recommend both to anyone. Um Anyone at all. Those are fantastic movies. Wherever you come down on horror movies, I think they'd uh, be fantastic. I wouldn't say elevated. I'd say uh, best examples of the genre. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, there's a feeling, too, for me, that it's about contemporaneous horror when we say J-horror. That it's a stretch from, like, let's say 1998 to, like, 2000 and, let's say, 2003 for, like, the height of it. Like, when it's, like, the most popular between Japan and America. And there's, like, that handshake that business deal where american producers found out they they could uh first remake these movies second release them onto dvd for uh slimmer margins and then they could profit from both without like taking away their cash cow which would be like a uh gore verbinski project or something um then there was uh, a feeling of mundanity that i i'm attracted to here i like um i like a contemporary horror that feels very mundane and like baked in a culture and i like that the lo-fi technology of these kind of blends into a contemporary mundanity that seems really um explicitly of modern japanese life modern uh, uh social environments in a way that i think is more interesting than i see in most modern horror films like we look at horror films from like 70s 80s we're like and there's so many indicators on those of uh, time and era uh, place and where you're being and I think like these are the most uh, centrally 2000s movies that were uh, uh, made within like the horror genre as Americans drifted toward like a a gross torture porn or like an Eli Roth style um, I thought mm -hmm. Japan was really doing something captivating that I'm really 
I guess emotionally keyed into of like that was that era of time where uh, millennium things were changing technology was uh, confronting us with a lot of fear um, look at 1998 and we were looking at computers like they were the end of the world possibly and we were looking at viruses and the spread of disease and uh, coming off like solutions to the AIDS epidemic and also all these vaccines we were coming up with science was able to confront things meanwhile technology was arising along with science and presenting us new information so uh a lot of that, I think, all goes into what the ring is bringing us, and like that place and time is very much like what I think of with the ring. Yeah, you you really you nailed it right there. I do feel like 1998, if we're to kind of like accept ring you as what people classify as the start of J horror, really 1998 through maybe even like 2005. I feel like that's yeah, like you could peak, go much further. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's like peak J horror and. and what you said about technology, uh, now that you bring it up, it is so clear. I mean, Ringu, we're dealing with, you know, the television, the VHS tape. There's that element. Then you think mm-hmm. one missed call. That's obvious. There's cell phones. Uh, even Pulse is looking into uh, computer and internet, computers and internet chatting. Um, and maybe even to some degree, you could look at, you know, something like uh, Sono Suicide Club and see this this element of like, how much um how much we're able to consume now how available media is to us and how this might affect people's psyches to some extent um that there's there's so much going on there with that era of japanese horror horror and it's clearly there were concerns about the future of and what technology would mean for humankind moving forward um and I like what you you said about viruses too, not just because it explicitly pertains to Ring, as we're going to get into, but um, even in some of those J-horror movies I've watched that are maybe uh, lesser known, the AIDS epidemic is something that is repeatedly talked about in these movies. And I don't know if that's just common throughout all 1990s movies, um, but it's an interesting thing to to see to see how these movies kind of work of time capsules of what people were anxious and concerned about and i think it is but also it it really is specific to something about these that often they're about like a vaccination or a um spreading curse um throughout not just the j-horror but like a history of japanese cinema you know the i guess like a typified version might be a ghost or a curse story might be like a, a motivation in a lot of them um and mm-hmm. you could look at like a whole series of those. But uh, once you're looking at technology and vaccines, you're kind of getting into something um, about virality and uh, about how things are spreading um, with like the globalization of technology as well. I think it was a moment where we were finally globalized at the right time, where um, other cultures were going to tell us about their technology just as we were able to access it. Like, um, Right at that time, like 98 was when I first had internet and stuff. It's like a, there was like a, a immediate spread as soon as these stories that were essentially, I'd say it's like a folktale, right? Like a, there's something about Ring that's like very folktale-ish and uh, built into like that tradition of storytelling. So I think like once you have that online connection, you really have the opportunity to spread. And I think, uh, of course, we'll get into how this is about that kind of thing while we're... Um, dealing with COVID. I don't think it's just in general to that, though. I think it's a, a human fear and an unnecessary fear that uh, helps us with evolution and protecting ourselves from 
uh, things are very cyclical and dangerous uh, and energies that are a little bit um, always present. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I suppose, I guess we, we've kind of given people a rundown of, of J-Horror very quickly. Um, maybe we, we should get into this book first and then talk about the movie. We, okay. we literally just finished both. <laughs> like I think it, it'll make fresh more on our minds to go like chronologically uh, through the uh, whatever is chronological. I think will make the most sense for us to do. Um, mm-hmm. I think that'll always be book first. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. I think that'll uh, I think that'll work. And uh, should we should we compare it as we go, or should we just talk about the book first? Um, Maybe give like a a, a brief. We'll give kind of like a brief intro to the book, maybe how we feel about it and, you know, what what it left us to think about. And then I think we can then kind of start to blur the lines and just talk about the movie and book kind of in tandem, maybe comparatively, sure. whatever, whatever we want to do. So Asaka was a journalist and he's uh, working on an investigation for kids in a cabin Uh viewed a videotape and died a week later uh, from immediate heart failure. So uh, he's kind of uh, tracing the origin of that and uh, goes into a cabin and kind of goes on his own journey as he finds that tape and is exposed to something that uh, promises his death within seven days of viewing it. Yeah. Yep. We, we start, you know, we pretty much start with people dying <laughs> yeah, we did. And, and Asakawa immediately trying to uncover um, how these deaths are linked because yes, there are a few teenagers uh, and the reason that Asakawa was able to get himself wrapped into it is because one of those, uh, I believe uh, Tomiko, the 17 year old at the very beginning is his niece. Mm-hmm. And so that connection you know, why did his 17 year old niece suddenly die from, you know, random heart failure? And then why did these other teens who she happened to know die at like the same exact time, same night? Uh, and, and so that is what leads us into this descent uh, into darkness, I guess you could say, um, and into a very interesting investigation based novel for the most part it's really beautiful in the book how it's able to take uh, extra time with these things as Asakwa goes to this uh, resort with like a view of Mount Fuji overlooking it. And you feel like you're like in like the most relaxing uh, mountainous cabin. Um, and it has good cabin vibes, I think in both uh, book and movie uh, we're kind of like there and we get all the finer details. Um, a very different uh, video presented that's uh, far more detailed than that of the movie, I'd say. Uh, the way the book captures it is really interesting if you want to uh, kind of detail that. Yeah, so um, Asakawa finds himself at this cabin because he, he had discovered that the teenagers had all spent a night at the cabin. And so he's looking for clues and he finds the tape. And this is the tape that all of us know about from the movie it is like the lasting image of what ringu is right and so in the book uh just like the scribbled notes that i have i mean we know it's a vhs tape mm-hmm. it starts with a black screen it's flickering um it's very abstract and, and 
the author Suzuki makes it a point, especially even later on in the novel, uh, to emphasize that there's these scenes of uh, undoubtedly things that are real and then things that are abstract that are harder to explain. And so in the book, uh, you know, Asakawa talks about seeing a milk white color and then uh, bursts of color and grumbling, these weird uh, grumblings that are, are a dialect that he doesn't understand. Uh, it's all very cryptic and kind of bizarre. Um, but the way that Suzuki lays it all out, it, it definitely you can you can imagine it in your head. And I was surprised by how I would say terrifying the description kind of is not just of the tape itself, but of the type of fear that the tape evokes. I mean, mm -hmm. what Asakawa is like internally struggling with as he's watching it uh, is described really well, as well as um, the fate of the teenagers, which we we learned early on. I mean, he describes like their faces are like warped with just utter fear and that they're clenching at their necks, uh, it, you know, trying to get away from whatever is consuming them in these moments. And it, it's really terrifying. Um, I guess I am curious how, how you feel about maybe the movie's depiction in comparison to what the book presented. I think the lo-fi technological aspect of it as matched with like the 1998, like a horror aesthetic, I think is really important for how the movie could visualize it and uh, how it can visualize uh, uh, Seda too. I think it's, um, now I don't think it has as much material as the book does because everything in the uh, portrayal in the book is either you know a red herring or a setup for something that they might need to find out about uh, Seda to be able to uncover her I don't think the movie so clearly um, lays out uh, here are the steps like uh, here's an eruption here's what this volcano would be you know um, maybe it's too clean in the book where it's a, a series of clues as a video uh, whereas in the movie, I think it's kind of just a haunting cursed video, which deals with another thing that um, that era of horror loves, which is forbidden uh, video and forbidden content, kind of playing into like a modern fixation of like you'd say like creepypasta or online folk storytelling, which is all about uh, forbidden uh, tapes, forbidden games that people play online. Um, I think that... Uh, uh, more modernly plays into it on the movie. Uh, it's a little bit too scripted in the book where I feel like it's leading them exactly where they need to go if you break down the parts of it. But um, I didn't realize in the movie how uh, distinctly laid out the um, videotape would be where it is, like you say, um, kind of aberrations of the eye, uh, a lot of blinking. You could kind of see um, these places that look uh, familiar, real, and then you break from things that just aren't real at all. Um, I think that that difference is interesting because it really captures something else, which is uh, what's filmed on videotape and what's filmed, uh, not filmed, what's, uh, what would you say, transcribed onto film by someone's uh, psychic power that they're uh, seeing something and then uh, mentally printing that onto film. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry about that. Um, the, the more that I think about it, um, it's like, I, I like what you said about this whole, the, the 1998 
uh, technological aspect. The the movie, maybe it's just because I've watched a lot of like the low brow Japanese horror from that era, including, you know, things that I guess were a little bit before, but like the guinea pig films also around this time was Tumbling Doll of Flesh, which is like uh, incredibly rough. And it's exactly what it sounds like obviously fictional but you get what it's trying to depict and so the movie there's more of this element like yeah this is something you're not supposed to be watching almost like you said creepypasta there's almost like a snuff film element to it yeah whereas in the book it is so abstract that like it's not even a snuff film it's just a bizarre thing that they've stumbled that asakawa stumbled upon um and i think that the book and the movie the way that that everything develops after having seen the tape there's like convenient elements to both right like you said the book kind of lays out all these different things and our secondary main character ryuji we're kind of just supposed to accept that he's incredibly intelligent and has this intuition for everything we'll have to talk about ryuji of it all but yeah yeah (laughs) i i think that this episode will turn into us talking about ryuji a lot because he is a fascinating character in both the book and the movie and for different reasons um but yeah and then in the movie like we're also kind of supposed to just accept that like all right, Asakawa, who in the movie we should mention is a woman, not a man. With like a different name, yeah. Ryuku is her name. Uh, Ryuku Akasawa is her name in the movie. So, I mean, she's yeah. even a different person, technically. Well, and actually, maybe we, we should just get into this. So Asakawa okay. in the book is he is a married man with pretty much an infant child, a very, very young child. And then in the movie... Uh, the Asakawa that we know is a woman who is divorced and has a slightly older child, like elementary school age child. And um, so that's like how they differ straight off the jump. Like if you read the book and watched the movie, you immediately like, okay, this is different. We have similar names, but different dynamics here. Um, and in the book, Asakawa leans on a couple of people to assist him throughout this uh investigation into this cursed tape and one of those people is yoshino who's like another reporter and then there's ryuji who's this person he knows from childhood who we are given every reason to kind of dislike like he's very intelligent uh and charismatic but we learn some things about him that are just atrocious uh he is like an open abuser of of women at least so it seems so whereas Yeah, whereas Ryuji in the film is uh, Asakawa's ex-husband. Yes. Uh, So I think the book creates like this feeling like uh, it's okay. I could show it to this guy because he's a real piece of shit or so he says he is. Uh, Like we're not supposed supposed to feel bad that Asakawa's going to show it to this guy who uh, he believes uh, maybe, you know, isn't really a reputable guy like i think that if he left the earth like what would be like the actual cost is kind of like our feeling like um but then like the stakes seem low uh relatively he's a professor Ryuchi, in the book and he's uh a very studious and is a a good match for uh our main character's journalism i think like that that combo of journalism and uh professorial like study over like a 
what happened here and like the history of Japan and uh, regionally and like going into the libraries. They're very helpful and they make a very fun team. But I think he, uh, I think he also suggests that you know, like, what if he went missing? You know, what what would be the cost? Uh, which yeah, I, don't I mean, feel the, in the movie, like, she just shows it to her ex husband. It's like, uh, you're going to die now. And by the way, we have a, a newborn baby that uh, isn't going to have a parent if we both die. <laughs> yeah, I think that. So th- this, it's funny because this is so early on. Well, relatively early on in the book, and so early on in the film. Uh, and, and I don't mind asakawa being you know a female character in the movie and we kind of discussed it while watching with our friend cody that there's like you know that people are immediately going to gravitate towards a female protagonist maybe they have more sympathy for the situation she's involved in the fact that she's a single mother like raising this kid what there's all these reasons to kind of care about her at least like on the surface Mm. um and then in the book, we have Ryuji who openly admitted to assaulting a woman when they were in high school. And as you say, Asakawa kind of is like, well, if I get him involved and he's really the best person he can get involved, given like his studies and everything, he's like, well, you know, if if this guy died, is that really the end of the world? Yeah. <laughs> because he, he seems terrible. Um, and as the book progresses, I don't want to say that it like forgets that Ryuji did anything because they do briefly bring it up again later, but you're almost, you're almost given this. I don't know. You're given reason to trust him just like our main character does. And if you're wondering why our main character Asukawa trusts this man who told him that he abused a woman when they were in high school and says he he, maybe still does. um, Yeah. And says he maybe still does 15 years later. Right. Um, it's because it was a fascinating line to me. Uh, Asakawa describes it in the book as like he's attracted to Ryuji because he's psychologically strong. There's this element that Ryuji can live his life without fear um, of death or of any type of consequence. Whereas our main character Asakawa, despite being like a thorough, you know, intelligent journalist, he's a very he. Ba- I, I would say he operates. Uh, almost 100% like off of emotion nine times out of 10. I mean, Ryuji kind of is the intellectual backbone of this dynamic. Whereas Asakawa is all the time kind of worrying about his wife and kid. Uh, if they see the tape, what would happen if they saw the tape, uh, how to uncover this whole mystery. Uh, so people don't continue to die after they watch the tape. Uh, I mean, there's like multiple moments throughout the book where he's like, I'm about to throw up. I was going to piss myself. I feel like I'm going to faint. <laughs> Whereas Ryuji's like, oh, he he said something disgusting. And actually, maybe if I just say this, this will paint a picture for everyone listening. But there's a point in time where uh, they're discussing like the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and Ryuji pretty much says that like, you know, he he has this dream for the future to sit atop a hill while watching the extinction of mankind, digging a hole in the earth and ejaculating in it over and over. That's uh, right. And so, yeah, they hit us. They hit Calvin and I with that line. <laughs> and, and we're like, what the, f- what, like, what is wrong with this man? <laughs> but at the same time, like we are stuck with him for the long haul. Um, and he does have this weird, like charismatic charm the fact that 
he his intuition is always right is like a little bit too convenient but it also i don't know somehow it kind of works um but yeah then you go to the movie and it's like okay ryuji is asakawa's ex-husband she stumbles upon this tape she has a kid with this man and she immediately gets him involved and i'm like well if you both die then your kid has no parents and so that already i'm like i'm thrown for a loop i'm like why is ryuji you know the ex-husband and then the movie kind of paints him i would say he's painted mostly to be a relatively decent guy like in the movie yeah yeah for the most part i mean there's maybe some hints that he's i don't know maybe gets around with his students or something but uh for all intents and purposes like he's a completely average fine person um which is so different from the book um so different I think an interesting note from the about the author is uh, well several that um, uh, Suzuki was a bit of a jock that he was uh, a father of two he was an expert in child rearing and uh, uh, his publications before this were about uh, that subject uh, but moreover that he wrote Ring with his child sitting on his lap so I think it brings a lot of parental fear of the future and what we're exposing children to and all mm-hmm. the evils that are kind of a um just uh almost accidental negligence like we have them and he's like sitting in front of the computer writing this story about uh things that may happen but i i think it's surrounded in like parental and especially dad fear of like a how we could actually protect our offspring right right yeah that's something i didn't even know but that's something you would also i guess be you would be able to have an appreciation for that parental fear much more than myself as someone that doesn't have kids like the, um, the real fear isn't that he's seen the video like the the terrifying thing for him is that uh his wife and child had seen it and uh i think because uh his friend uh Ryuji doesn't have that like uh he's not driven by like instinctual fear and he's uh able to think more rationally about it in the book at least uh in the in the movie the stakes are the same for Ryuji and uh, Asakawa so I think that's interesting too that it like evens the playing field between them rather than making them two separate characters and even in some instances it mixes up the things each of them do um, in very specific ways it mixes up like their roles and their actions and like especially like digging in the well later in the book uh, in the movie Um, it, it mixes up like who these characters are and they kind of blend into uh, the same thing they're kind of a reflection of each other in the movie which i do appreciate um but it's a different thing and the depth of the characters are uh, so interesting and weird that i don't know how you would adapt them into a movie either without totally confusing the audience especially where ryuchi goes later yeah i i think that um if there's one thing that the movie does really well is that it takes the grander points of the novel and like synthesizes them down and and, and it hits each of those like major plot points like there's Mm -hmm. these character changes um but in in general like you know there's this curse and and they're trying to uncover why it's there and how how to stop it from spreading and all of that is very much kind of in line and maybe this is where you and i where where our opinions diverge i don't know well i guess we'll talk about it right now yeah but I I personally, um, I'll, I'll go on the record now and just say I do prefer the book 
to the movie. But I'll also go on the record and say I did not expect that to be the case. Um, I there's this like really grimy, gross aspect to the book, especially I feel like in the first half, but actually <laughs> it's kind of persistent throughout. Um, and, and I mean, Ryuji's treatment of women is is one aspect of that. It's gross. It's it's abhorrent and you hate it. But for me, what makes it interesting is that while I was reading the book, at least at first, to me, I was like, Asakawa has more than one threat than just the curse, right? To me, oh, I'm yeah. like, he he is constantly wondering if he can really trust Ryuji. And as the reader, I'm doing the same. I'm like, can we really trust this guy? Like, is he actually <laughs> helping? Like, to what end is, is all of this? Um, whereas in the movie, I don't want to say the movie's like totally sanitized, but there's this element of like, okay, uh, they had a kid together that they're they're divorced now but this mystery almost helps them like rekindle their affection for each other uh and maybe find a common purpose which is maybe to i don't know protect this kid um and and, and, like it's all fine and i don't really have an issue with it but it's also something that i feel like is relatively common in movies not just horror movies but just like here's this conflict and now it's going to bring these two people back together um and in that way, I, I don't know. I just was less interested in, in the stakes and the dynamic. Whereas like sure. okay. in the book, I'm like, okay, I don't know. For all I know, Ryuji could kill Asakawa before the curse does. You know, I'm like, <laughs> it feels that way. Sometimes. Or they could get so far along with uncovering all of these, you know, important details, but then Ryuji could twist them and warp them. Uh, so he protects himself. You know, that that's something that you don't really know until the very end. Um, and, and I really liked that dynamic and I felt like it added another level of tension that I don't feel like the movie quite had. If I hadn't known the movie, I could believe that Ryuji is fucking with Asakawa. <laughs> I, I could believe that this is almost another thing that he's put him up to, uh, mm-hmm. that, that he's designed some larger scheme and really fucked with something here. Um, but, but it could still go evil. Um, I think for me, like a preference for the movie in general is more um, less about the storytelling, more context to use where it's about a videotape that's a very viral and cursed thing. And if you see it, you're going to die. And just having to witness that on a screen, I think is very powerful for me. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think it's really a context to use thing where it's a thing about technology and how that spread and then viewing it uh, through technology and um ease of home use was kind of a thing by then like movies started coming out in dvd around the time these were coming out and like we had uh very real access but we still had those screens that uh went a little fuzzy when you're on the wrong channel i remember uh the night after my dad and i saw like this uh uh the original movie here i'd uh i'd go in kind of just like fuck with the remote when he was watching something make sure that he got the real fuzzy screen uh and we you know we we'd always play pranks on each other after we saw horror movies. Uh, that's the right. only way to go about it. Um, yeah. I, well, think, and like- I, I think that the, uh, the movie that is, that is an excellent point because there is, there's an inherent charm to be able to watch this film where there's a cursed VHS tape, you know, like <laughs> yeah. on VHS or what, like there is sure. something so appealing about that. Um, and, and I guess upon this, this, this revisit of the film, cause I hadn't seen it in maybe about six years before we rewatched it together um 
it, it didn't dawn on me how the movie really is. It's designed to be like a theater movie. I think it is a popcorn flick, um, not like in an action-y sense, but like, or even a jump scare sense, but like it, it's not too offensive or over the top. It's relatively accessible to like teenagers and adults. And uh, it there there is something satisfying about watching it with friends as we did you know we watched it with our friend cody mm-hmm. um and so all of that i do think works in the film's favor um as much as the book wants to describe the tape and how this tape you know passes on this curse it does work really well when you're actually watching it in tape form <laughs> um so I, I i guess like yeah there's the whole aesthetic of ringu itself and the time that it it came out and was revealed to all of us, I'm not surprised. It's it's more of a, a cultural phenomenon or mainstay than the book. Um, I, I guess I'm kind of just like, okay, I have this preference for the book. Maybe other people wouldn't prefer it like I do. But I think if there's one thing that you and I both came away with is that the book is actually like still pretty damn good on its own. I have it as like an 8 out of 10 movie and I'd have it as an 8 out of 10 book in the sense that I'm like, I like different things. As you say, the Mm -hmm. characterization is much deeper. Uh, Asakawa and uh, Ryuchi are very well developed and they mirror each other in the movie, but they're uh, um, in conflict in the book. They're opposites. They reveal something else about each other by how they're related. And I think they're very interesting uh, people to be paired with the responsible for each other's uh, eventual demise possibly um right and it's an investigative book i think it's more of a, a more typical horror movie uh when we're looking at the movie portion of it that is sanded down i don't think it's sanitized but i think it's sanded down around the edges to make a very efficient popcorn movie like you say i think mm-hmm. it's just a superbly entertaining in a way that i put the book down a lot as i was reading it i wasn't like uh, we'll get into it but i wasn't like hooked hooked until the last 60 pages of like the 280 something pages so uh, i think mm-hmm. it's a great book i just uh, uh some of the writing maybe some of the translation is a little off at points but uh i think wholly worth reading anyway yeah i i think as we were watching the movie i'm kind of i was just kind of comparing like the horrific imagery of the book and of the of the movie um and I guess trying to, to compare them like from an aesthetic sense, even though there's no pictures in this book, but like mm-hmm. the way that Suzuki, you know, described the, the way that these people would die. Um, I, I, I found more terrifying than the way the deaths were shown in the film. Um, but I do think that as much as I love the investigative aspect of the novel, I like how they're, uh, you know, pausing this tape frame by frame, trying to figure out every last aspect. It does feel like they kind of figure out everything maybe a little bit too easily. I mean, maybe it's too convenient. Yeah. But then in the movie, it kind of, the movie kind of asks the audience to do the same thing. I felt Mm. like Asakawa and Ryuji were just like, I mean, there's a psychic element to both the book and the film. And I feel like the psychic element to the movie is brought forward. Like, much earlier in time and they're essentially just like consistently figuring out exactly what they need to figure out i felt like with maybe not much trouble and so as soon as 
they get to their destination to try and break this curse. So I was like, I don't know. I feel like in an hour and about 25 minutes. So I was like, they got here pretty fast. I'm like, they figured this all out like really easily. Their relationship is like on the come up. And I'm like, it, it it's a totally, it's, it's filmed so well and so efficiently. And as mm-hmm. we said, it, it hits those grander points of like this curse and virus so well, but I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I guess the characterization kind of was a deal breaker for me. And that mm-hmm. might, that might just be my personal preferences, even like beyond horror. I, I really gravitate towards like getting into the minds of characters, no matter how great or deplorable they are. And I don't ever really feel like we get into the minds of our characters in the movie. No, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's trying to either. Uh, no, uh, it's very surface level. I think what the appeals of the movie are, I think it's very effective, but uh uh, the book the book does so much more of that in a very satisfying way uh, where we really get to uh, dig into who these people are and what they're doing well and, and i should i should clear up like my preference for the book is is slight like you gave both the, like an eight out of ten mm-hmm. and for me i'd probably give the book an eight out of ten and the movie a seven out of ten okay. it, it's 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 not like this drastic um difference in how i feel about them but i i did find that just spending time with those those characters was was fascinating um and, and i actually i i liked the element of asakawa's uh wife and child in the book stumbling upon the tape kind of on their own where yeah. like that that made the stakes actually then feel a lot higher because like you said it uh there's this fear that his his uh wife and child might die but there's also this fear even before that where he's like what if they don't have someone to help take care of them like that right. was his initial fear um and so i just felt like the stakes were higher in that regard i mean there there is the element of okay both the parents watched the the tape in the movie so the kid would be presumably left with the, the grandparents or some relative <laughs> they pass but know. like yeah i don't know there was just like the, the book made it so it felt like there was so much more going on. I'm like, well, what if Asakawa lives, but then his, you know, wife and kid die? Or what if Ryuji <laughs> messes with it? Like, there were so many things that I was trying to imagine could happen by the end. Whereas with the movie, um, which I do want to make it known, I did not finish the book before the movie. So mm-hmm. I didn't actually know how things might, would, would differ in that regard. But yeah, the movie, like, I mean, it does have a tragic ending to an extent, but... uh. I don't know. It, it all did feel like relatively straightforward, I suppose. Whereas I felt like in the book, I was like, I feel like I'm guessing the whole time. Um, and, and we noted this while we were watching it, but the guy that plays Ryuji in the film is Hiroyuki Sonata. Like this is this, this major actor from Japan, uh-huh. arguably bigger in the U S than Japan. You, you could probably make that argument. Um for those that don't know him, I mean, more recently, he's been like in the Mortal Kombat movie. He was in 47 Ronin. Not saying either of those are good movies, but he was in them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he has a, a very like impressive resume altogether, uh, especially as like an international star. And I didn't even remember that he was Ryuji when we were revisiting this. I was like, how... Like, I, I feel like that just went to kind of show how the characters themselves didn't have much to them 
Oh, I, um, I do like him as Ryuji. Uh, the film's Ryuji, I should say. I think he, he's, yeah, he's still good. Like yeah. all the all the performances are fine. It's just the characters don't have like too the many depth, defining. Yeah. yeah, they don't have too many defining characteristics other than I'm the ex-husband that has this kid, and I'm the ex-wife that has this kid. Um, and that, that is like fine. It, it does make yeah. for like perfect popcorn flick stuff. Um, so it does become like a matter of of what you prefer. Maybe you prefer both, and it's just a, a matter of where you're at in life or what's going on. But it, it, I don't know. It was just it, I, I felt like there were so many different kinds of uh, <laughs> revelations while I was watching and reading <laughs> these yeah, stories. I, yeah, I could see it. I think that the Ryuji thing um, makes sense to me in the change. Just where he goes in the book is so goddamn confusing. Where I think like you couldn't lay some of these things out in a movie. I think they're they're very confusing and they're um, a lot of internal monologues that Asaka was having uh, with himself. Uh, a lot of the thinking that's done in the book is really what's so captivating about the internal mystery and struggle that Asaka uh, is going through that I think is very hard to visualize like in a visual language that's uh, consistent with the other images of the text that are that make it right. still captivating to get through that mystery and say like under 100 minutes like you're still trying to make like a real uh um as you say theatrically interesting uh horror movie that uh gets in and out and stays with you after i think you're uh, really pressed to get internal character uh when all of that's presented as dialogue i think it's so hard um mm-hmm. i i have very few examples of where a book's really able to captivatingly move to a movie and, and really capture that internal imagination we have with the characters. Right. Uh, which is so good here. I think Suzuki's strength is really in his characterizations. And as the, as it leads them through the journey together, uh, we, we really do appreciate their, their time together. I think. Yeah. And I think that despite my preference, I think that Nakata did all the right things for adapting the story because realistically, if you want to make a horror movie uh, that is going to do well, not just domestically, but also internationally. And I don't know if that's what Nakata's aim was when he was <laughs> yeah, making this. Know. But, but um, if he were to keep all the elements of the book, especially about Ryuji, it would be a tough ask for audience members to like get behind it. Whereas in the movie, even if it's more surface level, it is easy to get behind this like uh, broken up uh, marriage that's kind of trying to repair itself and trying to protect this child. Those are all very easy things to get behind. And I don't I, I don't think we've emphasized it enough, but Nakata really does do it so efficiently. It's like very he, efficient. Yeah. Like the movie does fly by when we watched it and it ended. I was like, holy crap, an hour and a half already went by. And he there, there was a funny part like two minutes into the movie where I made a comment and I was like, he just condensed like the first 200, like 120 pages of the book into like a minute of screen time. And it was true. I think, And, he, and it yeah. didn't feel like it didn't feel um, like a bad decision or anything. It was, I, I was just surprised. I was like, holy crap. The whole first hundred pages I read was only one minute of screen time, uh, but it worked well. Yeah, it's a beautifully edited movie too. Who knows that they shot some extra stuff around like those characters, but I think it's so tightly edited in a way that the result of this movie as it is is the only way that this could have spread like a wildfire to America. Like if you if you actually made what this book is, I don't think it would have 
um, resounded in a way that made J-Hor popular for more than a couple of years. I think it would have flatlined um, uh, with a general audience. I think it's too weird. And uh, there, there's, if it were a literal translation of everything about these characters, I think it would be a little bit too odd for um, an American or international audience. I think it's very specific stuff too. Um, well, and we, we referenced Audition earlier on, which the film the film came out after Ringu. And I think that the Audition novel also came out after the Ring book. Um, but like, if, if you gave Takashi Miike the <laughs> ring, right, he probably would have kept Ryuji and all this stuff. And, yeah. and that's the type of movie that maybe could have garnered a cult following. It could have been a better you know, movie. Yeah. It could it could have been a better movie, but it, it could have garnered a cult following. Maybe like the obsessive Japanese cinema nerds like myself would be like, oh, this is really good. Um, but I don't think it would have became this groundbreaking phenomenon that would literally shape, you know, Japanese and U.S. horror filmmaking for at least the next decade. Sure. Um, I, I think that what Nakata did, if you know the way he did it is why it is what it is now it's why we know it as this huge thing um and, and i think i don't know if you picked up on any of this as well but as i'm reading the book and as i'm watching the movie i'm actually kind of I, I felt like i was making connections to maybe uh what these sources could have influenced after right and, and something that intrigued me in the film was kind of like that distortion of the photographs and, and the tapes and stuff, which is something that you see in the Thai horror film Shudder years yeah, later. Right. And Shudder is a good movie. Yeah, Shudder is a, is a great movie. But um, I'm sitting there, I was like, oh, I have to wonder now, like, I mean, maybe Ringu wasn't the first movie to obscure a photograph like that. But I, <laughs> sure, I couldn't help. Yeah. I couldn't help but think like, oh, well, maybe that this influenced it. And as I'm reading the book, the book explicitly calls this uh, this curse, you know, with Sadako, uh, it, it, it ends up referring to it as a grudge. And actually, yeah. I'm reading the book and I'm like, I'm thinking about the 10 plus Juan films <laughs> that we watched. And I'm like, I can't help but think that like this book, to some extent with how it's set up, not necessarily with the characters, because as we said, there's deep characterization in the book and there's not in the Juan movies. But this general idea of like this curse almost spreading like wildfire uh and trying to uncover more facts about it i was like that is what juan is all about and this ring novel did it first you know yeah. and it explicitly calls it a grudge so i was i couldn't help but think about that as i was reading it um something i forget the exact line but uh you think about reproduction 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 with the, what these uh end up becoming too it's mm -hmm. funny that they require copies and that's like literally what the film manifests um uh, Takashike Ichise is a, a producer on the film he also did like Dark Water and uh at least the first Juwan so uh there there are hands that are kind of like between uh, some of these things that are kind of spurring like this whole movement forward in Japan um I, I do think that is a thing where it is uh, about virality and it has to become a uh kind of franchise I think the the movie is very franchisable in a way that um i think the book leads you wonder like what's the rings though like what's the what's the connection between these things you you still want to read it but uh very easy to make a sequel to that movie and i think uh, i think we'll see the spirals i think the the book's going to go much weirder each time while the movies will uh kind of seem more the same as we continue on
Yeah, I mean, you you hit the nail on the head with like the last 60 pages of the book ramp up into this. Just, <laughs> I don't want to call it like absurd, but like it, it it's like throwing a lot at you as the reader and you kind of just have to accept it. But the book has had been so good up to that point that you kind of are willing to accept it. You're like, this is all crazy. Uh, and I don't know why any of it works, but it kind of works. Uh, and, and to some extent, I almost I mean, to to push that all into the last 60 pages or so it, it, it almost felt like a little bit rushed but then as you said it's not just the movies that are franchisable it's the books and you yeah. can tell like i feel like the ending was so clear that like yes there's 100 percent gonna be a second book maybe a third or a fourth too that connects all of these weird things together um and i would not be surprised if this is not the last that we've heard of uh, from Asakawa or Ryuji or these characters that we met in this first book. It should say, like in the in the film too, the Nikata's uh, gender switch of Asakawa makes it kind of a final girl uh, uh, approach, which I think works best in a horror movie because we're again, it's all context to use, and I think it's I think it's one of the most brilliant horror movies of all time for understanding our direct context with the movies and how we. Um, engage with them and what those uh, themes are like I think the changes from the book are are so intelligent by Nakata um, I think we we start seeing some of that in the 95 movie uh, which we barely brush on but I think it's uh, less I think it's more of a minor work it's a tv movie um, I don't like the sada there it's just a naked woman like it it's so uh, I think that's a very rough cut of what's about to come um, I think Nakata improves so much from there yeah, I think when it comes to that 1995 TV film, I think that like for a TV film, I think it's decent. And for having yeah. watched uh, probably more Japanese TV films than I need to, like I feel comfortable saying that. But I also feel like, yeah, it does not, you know, hold a light to the 1998 film. And it also doesn't hold a light to the novel. Uh, it, it tries to remain faithful to the novel, which is admirable. Um, and Japan can show more in their TV movies than we can. Mm -hmm. But uh, the novel so is, yeah. yeah, and but the novel is pretty like dark and grim. And, and the TV film, although it portrays a, a, a nude Sada, which in some ways is quite jarring, uh, it doesn't really go beyond that. You know, whether in terms of of scratching the surface of like the deplorable nature of Ryuji or even just conjuring up like the true terror uh, and, you know, frightful imagery that the book and then the later 1998 film both possess. Uh, the film is just kind of like it's faithful and admirable, but extraordinarily mediocre, I guess is what I would say. I guess. I guess by showing a new Sada, it kind of takes aside on um some of the gender that's uh, uh explored uh maybe problematically in suzuki's writing i i think uh, a lot of gender imperatives are said you know uh, essentially says if you have testicles you're a man that's the end of the story uh, is essentially kind of his line on gender um right uh so uh yeah at some point sada um is revealed to have testicles which uh, after being um, I don't like it at all, like the way it's presented, especially because it's presented as a, uh, she's being raped and then suddenly uh, something about that is interconnected with the reveal that has to happen about gender. Um, 
uh, something about that. Yeah, so something about like trans identity something... and rape uh, kind of freaked me out in the book. Yeah, I think that is something that it's necessary for us to talk about here, especially I- I'm I'm hoping that the people listening to us at least have interest in in checking out the book to some extent. Uh, I feel like everyone. Yeah, I mean, everyone in the world at this point has either seen Ringu or knows what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would definitely encourage revisiting. But yeah, I definitely like I want this podcast to encourage people to check out this book. But this book does come with these problematic elements. Um, It doesn't treat women particularly well at all. And when it comes to Ryuji's character and his treatment of women, which we later learn uh, might all be fictional. He may have never mistreated a woman. The book actually That's leaves that relatively yeah. open-ended. Uh, I don't know why which, it does. I don't know why it leaves it open. Um, I, I was yeah. frustrated by that as well. As soon as we both finished the book and before we started, uh, before we clicked record, we were both like, why did this, why was that a thing? Um, so we don't really know if Ryuji was terrible or not, but like you said, um, Sada was raped in the book and she wasn't just raped once she was raped twice once by um, this person that ran a theater group that she was a part of Uh, he was actually like the founder or leader of said theater group wait are we sure she was are you sure it was twice Uh... well so so she was we know that she joined that theater troupe okay yeah um, when she went to Tokyo and there was the the one character let me double check on his name really quick um the guy who runs the theater group there yeah so there's this guy named shigamori mm-hmm. um and the person that, so so what's happening is asakawa like he's searching all these uh these clues and it leads him to this theater troupe uh mainly because his friend yoshino was like hey sada was a part of this theater troupe and so they meet this guy named Shin Arima, who is a surviving member from when Sada was a part of the group. Uh, and people, uh, Shin Arima and this other guy, both immediately describe Sada as like creepy and eerie. And then it's revealed that the true leader of this theater group uh, was named Shigamori, and he's now deceased. Uh, but there, he was talking about wanting to make uh, Sadako his, his woman. Uh, and in the book, he explicitly states that he was going to storm into her apartment one day. But everyone thought uh, that it was just drunk talk or what yeah. uh, some people call locker room talk or whatever. Uh, and they don't know if he ever went or not. But the next day, they said he looked like a different person. And then he died in the rehearsal room uh yeah so so to me i feel like it's at least implied that he did something i don't know why else he would die unless it was like this protective measure because she does have these like psychic powers uh but i'm like able to will people to death if she yeah I, Um, i feel like the book led me to believe that she was taken advantage of um at least objectified right Mm. um and then i suppose that yes towards the end when we have the the reveal that she was for sure raped by someone uh who's now i guess now, it's confusing to me because the line on that is that it's about like her virginity is like she's not going to die a virgin so uh, she needs to be 
she psychically another problematic thing she psychically forces him to rape her uh a very weird thing uh, and then she wants to die uh that way and she wants him to kill her and she psychically makes that happen well um, so the i i think that and maybe the book just isn't clear or maybe one of us is misinterpreting or whatever or right. missing something but to me so there is this line they're talking to this uh this doctor uh dr nagao uh who worked at this uh sanatorium and and that's how he met sadako and to to make a long story short yes he he rapes her but he also uh asakawa and ryuji immediately recognized him before they met with him to discuss sadako because he was a part of the tape which they didn't yeah. know that they, they were looking for him. They found him and they were like, holy shit, this is the guy that was on the tape. Yeah, they were looking for clues about the video at this uh, sanatorium that she must have visited because of her mom, I believe. And then uh, and then they found the actual guy. Uh, that's a chilling moment in the book. Yeah. And, and, and so Ryuji makes, you know, made a comment about, uh, well, she wouldn't want to die a virgin. And right. then that's when we have this whole complicated aspect to Ryuji that's revealed <laughs> later on. Well, is he but, talking about himself? Yeah. Yeah. Because um, I, I think the book at the very end essentially says that. Uh, so because of this condition or whatever you want to call it that she has, the book is kind of vague, but they, they say testicular feminization syndrome. That's what it's called. And they say that she has fully formed testicles uh, externally. The, this is a, a direct quote. Externally, the person seems completely female, having breasts and a vagina, but usually no uterus. Chromosomally, the person is XY, however, so male. Uh, and then they say, for some reason, people with this condition are all beautiful, which is kind of a weird line. Yeah, that's uh, um, that, that bothered me too. <laughs> everything about this, uh, as they keep calling like they, they said a uh, pseudo hermaphroditism uh, everything surrounding that is really uncomfortable um to read and, and but it's also confusing like it's yeah. not just uncomfortable it's confusing i'm as confused uh, but yeah. as i am uncomfortable for sure yeah um, and i guess to get back to this point so ryuji says that someone wouldn't want to die a virgin maybe he maybe uh sadako willed this this man dr nagao to rape her but then at the very end asakawa who um basically i, I guess you could, I, I don't know he hypothesizes that um that maybe she that maybe sadako uh, made a deal with the devil to have lots of children so to me the thought wasn't like well, may, my I, I don't know. My thought wasn't that uh, she wasn't raped previously by by the uh, theater leader. Like I thought she, I thought that she was raped by him. But okay. um, I, I think that it wasn't about her being a virgin at all. I think Ryuji was wrong. I think it was more that like, okay, maybe she had this realization that she can't have kids, right? So then she well, she wants to, I don't know, have. Uh, like, like Asakawa hypothesized, she wanted to make a deal with the devil to have lots of children, and this was the way that she could do it, through this curse. Yeah, that's what um, I thought, too, is there was, like, a convenient plot device for her not to be able to have children and that to be 
her goal, whereas she slept with the uh, the last person in Japan with what was it, smallpox? Smallpox. Yeah, yeah, the last man was this doctor, um, and I guess like it would have she was I guess she was the last patient in Japan with with smallpox, but she died immediately upon uh, contracting it apparently, and that uh, leads to another virus that she psychically is able to imprint on these videotapes. Yeah, because the way that they almost put it is that, like, so she contracts smallpox because she is raped by Dr. Nagao, who had them and who they thought was the last person in Japan to ever have it. Um, but then there's also this, like, uh, deep desire to maybe have children. And then there's the weird element that they refer to, like, well, if there's water and it's in a small space and whatever then these are the conditions in which like a curse can prosper yeah it's all very bizarre and like we said it is they are uh suzuki is hitting you over the head with all of this in like the last 30 to 60 pages it's a lot i wonder often if the hit over the head part of it all is very much like translation or if it's very much like written that way where it's just like bam here's a solution to this here's a problem solution problem solution and uh, i wonder if like uh I guess I, I one thing I like about the movie is it doesn't kind of dangle a uh, a solution about it. Um, what do they call it? Uh, a charm. They, is it a charm? They keep saying there's like a... uh, so it's a it's a charm in the book and the movie. I okay, think. it's in both. Never mind. Yeah, they're, the the charm is just a a word I guess for breaking the curse. It just says it um, so much in the book, like it's so focused on. Where's the charm? Why was it recorded? Did the kids do this? I, I mean, I don't, I didn't need like the, the complete um, explanation of things, which I think uh, Suzuki often does. Uh, very much exposition to explain mm-hmm. yourself is like a very sci-fi uh, horror thing that that could happen in genre fiction. Uh, I don't. Yeah. Need. Well, and, and I think the whole just complicated and troubling handling of of sadako's you know bodily features is actually it is what keeps the book from being like as good as it could have been yeah i would have even Um, bumped it up that that yeah and and like i said not only it's not just that uh you know we we are we have more knowledge now than we did then and and people are more sensitive to to these issues now than they were then but like it's genuinely confusing when suzuki's laying it all out too like it it's hard to quite understand what it all really means means. yeah Yeah, what it means for the characters um and, and i think the other thing that makes it so tough as the reader is that like i'm at least slightly under the impression that like we are supposed to care for Sadako, right? Like we are supposed to feel like she was uh, her and her family were done wrong by people. Right. Cause there's this whole element that her mom was psychic first because she got this statue. um, And and at first everyone was like very, they had a very favorable view of Sadako's mother and her psychic ability and her, uh, her, lover of sorts that was also you know uh putting this theory out there that she had these psychic powers uh and then suddenly a bunch of scholars were like i'm gonna keep it real with all y'all there's no way that she's psychic and immediately they put her to the test in a public way uh she couldn't produce anything psychically impressive and everyone turned on them 
uh, and just belittled them and hated them. And yeah, forced her mom to to kill herself. Uh, it, 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 it really just messed up the whole entire family. And so in yeah. this regard, you're supposed to feel bad for them. Um, and I feel like you're supposed to feel bad for Sadako being objectified. But then I feel like there's moments where like Suzuki himself as the author is like further objectifying her. Great agree. Yeah. And, and that's what makes it troubling. It's like you, you feel like he cares about this character, but then he also every now and again, just like nonchalantly treats her like shit. And then, and then gives uh, Ryuji someone that we thought we should dislike almost like a, a nice arc, you know, it, it makes it very complicated uh, and hard to, to wrap your head around. I, I, I finished the book uh, so impressed by so much of the characterization and like the investigative aspects, but then I also finished it disappointed in, in I guess how it wrapped up and some of these more finer details to Sadako. Yeah. I think it's also, um, worth going on the journey with these characters i would recommend the book to pretty much anyone it's just a you have to get through those uh more confusing parts that are uh, that might not actually build anything for these characters that you already care about um i feel like the job's already done suzuki goes too far a few times but yeah i i actually think maybe the best way to characterize our experience and you can correct me if i'm wrong but our, our experience with both the book and the film is i feel like the book uh i feel like the start of the book and the first half of like the middle of the book are superior to that of the film but then i feel like the second half of the middle part of the film and the ending of the film are probably superior to the book it's kind of like a tale of of halves for each one uh the the novel builds momentum in this really interesting way and, and you do start to I, I guess feel for these characters or at least be interested in this journey that they're going on. Whereas in the movie, it doesn't start that way, but then as their relationship kind of uh, re-blossoms and the stakes start to feel a little bit higher, uh, you do care. And, and the movie does knock it out of the park um, with this, like this image that has transcended and, and continues to persist throughout horror movies at like, mm-hmm. If you watch the movie, you'll know the exact scene we're talking about. But it is a it's an iconic scene. And the book, it's very last sentence, I think, is like good that that last sentence or two. But the ending itself with all of the confusing elements that we're just forced to accept the weird character arcs, the questionable handling of Sadako's identity, uh, that is harder to swallow. But I do like the apocalyptic feel to the end of the book where it's like the skies are gray. Will this curse spread throughout the whole world? I'm like, oh, that's an eerie thing to think about. It's like slithering like snakes over the apocalypse or something. It's it's just a yeah. crazy ass ending. And um, I think the, the book only earns all that in the last 60 pages when it goes like balls out. Uh, absolutely insane. Um, mm-hmm. The movie definitely has a more cohesive pace where it's a uh, I mean, I could kind of sit with it. It's so short that uh, that that switch doesn't feel like uh, jarring to me. I guess. Um, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I I like the visualization of these things. As I say, I like uh, going to the cabin, find the VHS. I like the whole journey of Ringu and uh, Rings, both as stories, uh, uh, both very appealing to me. 
Yeah, I think overall, um, my experience with with this first novel and <laughs> well, not the first Ring adaptation, but the one that everyone acknowledges, uh, yeah. I think it, it. I think it is quite positive, uh, especially in comparison to the J horror that we have watched together uh, <laughs> off, off record off the podcast. Yeah, yeah I mean I, the Juwan movies that's an that's for another podcast maybe but <laughs> those are so irritating uh and, and every now and again there's some flashes of brilliance albeit maybe that brilliance is owed to something like ringu but um yeah ringu as a as a film uh it's so efficient it's inoffensive it conjures up the scares when it needs to. And like I said, it does knock it out of the park with the ending. If you find the beginning a little bit boring and meandering by the end, you'll be like, okay, that's an image I won't forget. And then the book it's, I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. And I, I think I might've liked that kind of first half, maybe more than you did. I like Um, it too though. Um, I'm on board with it. I should say. I, I really loved the investigative aspect to it that is i think the key difference is that the the book has time to to spend with the investigation and getting in the minds uh, and that just comes down to books and movies being different right you can only do sure. so much within each medium um but overall i think for our first like podcast episode we're both positive on these things and i think i would encourage everyone to check out both uh, even <laughs> if you don't love them, even if you don't love them, I think that especially the book is like a fascinating thing to unpick the problems um, because there's so much going for it. And then there's so much that I can see immediately, you know, putting people off and ruining it for them. So that that alone makes it a worthwhile experience. The next. Uh, well, I should say there are seven episodes that we're doing for the seven days. There are six books. So. The next time we'll be touching on um, the, a couple of remakes that are uh, international for uh, Ringu. Um, and uh, I think after that, we'll, we might find that the books are stronger in every case going forward. I will not be surprised when Suzuki ends up uh, being the winning figure in, in every further battle we have. I think uh, yeah. five, uh, you know, five out of six, I think he's the winner. I'm only giving it to the movie this one time, I believe. Uh, yeah find out yeah so i i next episode uh or yeah we're we're covering spiral i think and and the spiral novel wait are we doing the american ring first or are we doing spiral first we're doing spiral first and we're doing adaptations third so second second episode we'll do spiral and the novel and the film and then there's also ring zero uh which is that one which is based off of a short story called Lemon Heart, mostly, uh, from what I've gathered. So those are kind of like the next in line. And then for our third episode, maybe this will be the most hotly anticipated, but that is where we will cover the adaptations of this first novel, the Ring novel, uh, because there is a U.S. one, as you alluded to, from Gore Verbinski, and then there is Ring Virus, which is a South Korean take on. I'm so on curious Ring. how South Korea does it. Yeah. So I, I think the next two episodes in particular are going to be really exciting because we're kind of we're going to see how the, the story progresses. And mm-hmm. then we're also going to see how different countries handle the same story. Uh, 
it's a lot to look forward to, honestly. <laughs> I'm so excited to read the books. I'm going camping right after we record, and I, I'm bringing Spiral with me. I, it's going to be one of the highlights of the trip, I believe. So mm-hmm. can't wait. Yep. And, and so for anyone that might be confused, Calvin said it. He he is giving the win to the movie on this one. Mm-hmm. I guess only only by slightly, right? Um and, and I'm giving the win maybe to the book, but also only by slightly. They're both very okay. worth your time and checking out. Yeah. Uh, so I think between us, we recommend both. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty thoroughly, we both recommend both, I would say. Um, Absolutely. But one of us do have our uh, preference. Um, and I think uh, we might align further on the, the upcoming yeah. episodes. So we'll see. I think see. going forward, we'll, we're going to be in line. I don't we'll think see. that will always be the case when we start these series. I think we'll we'll have divergences where we uh, we pick other things. But um, you know how sequels go in this space. So we'll see how it mm-hmm. goes. Well, until then, uh, everyone has a little psychic ability. Um, so uh, just think about it hard enough and uh, the next one will show up on your feed when it's ready. Absolutely. That's what Koji Suzuki says, and I believe him. All right. Thanks so much, Ben. Yep. Thanks.